All right, let's do this. Peanut, if you're staying in the room, no talking. Hello, and welcome to the PhotoWork Podcast, the talky and touchy-feely version of my book, PhotoWork, 40 Photographers on Process and Practice. Hello, everyone. I'm Sasha Wolf, and I'm joined as usual by my guy. He's also his wife's guy. We're not a, okay. <laughs> oh, she'll be so happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making it sound thruppily, but it's not like that, people. It's not. But he is my guy, and without him, frankly, I'd be lost. So let me introduce you once again to Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton. Hello, Michael. Oh, hello there. Thank you. Yes. Can I? Maybe I'll call you my podcast partner or work work spouses. <laughs> That's right, work spouses. Yes. <laughs> so, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Uh, classes are uh, humming along. Um, my doc photo class is going really well. It's it's my favorite one of my favorite classes to teach because it's a uh, group work and I get to go out in the field with the students and it's uh, just so much more fun than sitting in the classroom the whole time. Yeah, of course. And you? All's well. All's well. Lots of of good projects going on. My Mm -hmm. Sasha Wolf projects artists have, oh my gosh, a lot of museum shows. Barbara Bosworth at the Cleveland Museum. Oh yeah. And Christine Potter in a show opening at the High Museum and then in a few months at the Momentary. Mm. And yeah, so working on all that. And of course, sales. How else would I be able to buy a pickle sandwich and um <laughs> and down then, on the Lower East Side uh, in, in 1920 <laughs> from the rabbi um, <laughs> yeah I don't know where that came from um <laughs> I channeled my ancestors that's right oh hmm um and yeah, lots of really exciting stuff with the foundation. Our fellows are off and running, working with their mentors, and that's really exciting. And we're starting to give shape to next year's not only fellowship, which will be expanded with more more fellows chosen, but also another program that we're going mm-hmm. to be introducing. So hard at work on that and yeah, all yeah. really fun and really exciting and blessed to always be working with a really great team. Um, so mm-hmm. big thanks as usual to Peter Kayafis, who's on the board but does of the foundation, but really does so much more. And our friend Tyler Sells back, second in command mm-hmm. of the foundation, working on some new partnerships, new Excellent. sponsorships and stuff like that. So yeah, it's all all really, really good. Yeah, well, speaking of sponsors, <laughs> that's, yes. I'm always looking for that segue. <laughs> yes, excellent. <laughs> You're welcome. Our, our sponsor, Picture House in the Small Darkroom, still has some events coming up. Uh, March 5th, Jay Carrier will be discussing his forthcoming book, Mirage, published by TIS. And Ian Lewandowski will be giving a talk on April 9th in conjunction with his solo show at Clamp Gallery. And Tim Carpenter will be in the studio on April 24th to discuss his new book, Little, published by Ice Plan. I really want to try to get to that. I have to figure yeah, out me too. how to organize my life with more time. <laughs> when it, When is that? April what? April 24th. Okay. So that's right around APAD, I think. Oh, okay. 
So yeah, maybe a big I trip think to New York. I may have made that up. <laughs> I have to look at the APAD dates. But let me just, uh, let's give a shout out to APAD. Mm-hmm. APAD is uh, the Association of International Photography Art Dealers. And it's the big photo show that happens in New York. And this year it is April 25th through April 28th. And I will mm. definitely be there. So <laughs> I usually visit. Yeah, yes. we'll have to uh, hang out. So, well, today's show, I think, was just absolutely wonderful. I'm, I'm really mm-hmm. excited about it. I got to talk to my old friend, Kelly Connell, who I've wanted to talk to for a long time. But her new book, Pictures for Karis, just came out with Aperture. And that was the bulk of our conversation. But we, we talked about other work. And I have to say, I am just so blown away by this this new book of Kelly's. It is just the most incredibly harmonious and holistic mixture of archival sort of research work, original work that's extremely beautiful, very personal, and almost like a road trip memoir, beautifully mm. written text. And I just think it all comes together like it's just miraculous in its seamlessness because that's it's a lot of different material. And I think the everyone who worked on it and mostly Kelly did an incredible job. But what what did, what were your thoughts? Yeah, you know, after I edit and post for you to listen to, you always ask, you know, what do you think? What do you think? And the yep. first word out of my mouth, I think, was smart. Uh, mm-hmm. I, it's it's so smart and so well done. And of course, it, it's dealing with portraiture and landscape and the history of all that. Um, it's just, yeah, it's it's an incredible piece of work. And you also talk about double life, and that also was a, a very inventive way to do uh, portraiture as well. If people don't know, they should go look at that too. And yeah, Kelly Connell is an original. Uh, yeah, she someone. really is. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. One thing that's really extraordinary is how long Kelly works on projects. So Double Life, Mm. which is a very well-known, celebrated body of work of Kelly's, she's been working on for 20 years. And Pictures for Karis, you know, she's been working on for, I'm not sure how many years, but many, many years. And so -hmm. there's a real patience and dedication. What I think is so extraordinary is so many artists are so eager is a nice way of putting it, um, to get their work out and sometimes too quickly, in Mm -hmm. my opinion. And I just really admire Kelly's dedication to waiting until it's really ready. Um, even if that takes a really long time, a lot of patience. (laughs) Yeah. It's really an incredible project. And just to put it in some context, Pictures for Karis refers to Karis Wilson, who was Edward Weston's partner and muse and collaborator on some of his most famous work. And Kelly Wynn developed a fascination with Karis and wanted to know more about who this woman was. And that and it was of, a real project of discovery for Kelly. Yeah, absolutely. Too. For Kelly. Yep. Without a doubt. Which becomes a project of discovery for us, which is yep. so brilliant. Yeah. Yep. Yep. No, it's really beautiful. It's a little bit long. So why don't we get to it? Yes. Michael, if you don't mind, please take it away. My pleasure. And here is your conversation with Kelly Connell. Kelly Connell, welcome to the Photo Work Podcast. It's so great to have you on. 
I've wanted to talk to you for a long time about your life and work life, but waited until uh, the new book was finished, which we're going to talk about. And so finally is, and uh, I finally got an advanced copy, very exciting. And I'm just thrilled to, to finally get to yep, get into it all with you. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Sasha. It's great to be here with you. So Kel, as well for our listeners, uh, I can call her Kel because we've known each other for a very long time. <laughs> <laughs> Kel, tell our listeners about your journey, where you're from, where you grew up, how you got into photography, what your life is now, etc. Uh, yeah, so I grew up in a relatively small town in Texas, Abilene, Texas, actually, and I wasn't exposed to art or culture in the ways that people would be if they had grown up in a larger city. I was always interested in directing and photography, but I didn't quite know what fine art photography was until I got to college. Luckily, mm-hmm. in high school, I had an amazing high school art teacher who converted a very small closet into a dark room, and that was my first introduction to making my own work, processing film, and uh, working with narratives. So I took that, and once I went to college, was able to realize what a life as a fine art photographer might be. And that was something that I immediately saw for myself going forward. Where was this? Where did you go to college and all those details? Yeah, so I went to the University of North Texas, and that's in Denton, Texas. Back then, you had to take several foundation classes before you even were able to take classes in your major. So it wasn't until I was a junior and realized what a fine art photographer was compared to a commercial photographer, photojournalist, that it really clicked for me what I could do. And me and another friend, Chaz Bowie is his name, and I mentioned him in the Um, Mm -hmm. pictures for Kara's book. Uh, As undergrads, we used to just sit with piles of photography books on the floor of his apartment and look through them page by page by page and analyze how the photographers went about the story that they were telling. So we sat with Larry Clark's Tulsa, William Eggleston's Guide, Um, Francesca Woodman's early self-portraits and uh, Deanne Arbus's work. And we just got kind of enthralled and captivated looking at the work of these photographers. And it was really exciting. And I think it also, at that time, I... um, Chaz and I had a crush on each other, so that energy was in the air along with the energy we were feeling from uh, looking at those photo books. So that experience was really formative. And from there, I graduated and I got married to my first husband, Jamie. And we um, lived in Dallas after that. And I was in elementary school art teacher for a year. And I really loved teaching. I was great with the kids, but I was so exhausted that year. I had no time for making my own art. And after that, I realized that 
it was really important to me to try to find a way to be able to spend time making art and then also have, you know, I had to have an income and teaching at the college level would afford me more time. So I went and got my master's degree at Texas Woman's University, which is also in Denton, Texas. I never thought that I would go to a primarily all women's college, but Susan K. Grant was the main professor there and she's just an amazing teacher. And when I met with her and showed her my work, I immediately clicked with her and knew that I wanted to study with her. So I moved back to Denton and worked with her. And towards the very end of my MFA, I started to work on Double Life. And Kiba Jacobson, who's the model for that work, who I've been working with for now almost 30 years, she lived in Denton at the time, and I, we didn't know it was going to turn into the long-term project that it is now. And it's been pretty incredible that our friendship has lasted um, over the years in such a you know profound way as a photographer-sitter relationship goes. But after I graduated from Texas Women's University, I took my first teaching job at Youngstown State University in Ohio. And around that time, I was getting quite a bit of exposure for Double Life. It was being shown in galleries and museums, and a book came out in 2011. There was a book that also came out in 2007 that was a smaller excerpt of Double Life in a publication called Midwest Photographers Project that was co-published mm -hmm. by the Museum of Contemporary Photography and Aperture, and it featured a volume by myself, Brian Ulrich, and Justin Newhall. During that time, I was able to show my work and get the work out there, and that eventually led to my job that I have now at Columbia College here in Chicago. Yeah, you've been in Chicago for a long time now. I, I think that I first saw your work actually in Midwest Photographers Project. The folks over at the Museum of Contemporary Photography in Chicago, the curators over there have been doing this for years, um, showcasing Midwest work and bringing artists to our attention, doing an incredible job. I've seen so much great work, been introduced to so much great work through this. I mean, in general, the Museum of Contemporary Photography really does an incredible job. And if folks are in Chicago, they should they should go over there. But, you know, I want to focus today primarily on your new book, Pictures for Karis. But because you've never been on before, I certainly want to talk about Double Life, the project you, you mentioned. And not only because it's an important project, but because there's a lot of questions I have about how the two projects relate and don't relate to each other. So, you mentioned Double Life and you said 30-year project. I'm going to correct you because I know it's a 20-year project because I know you're not that old. So um, <laughs> <laughs> 20 years. My beginning um, podcast nerves, yes. <laughs> that's that's okay. I still make a million uh, errors that Mr. Michael Chauvin Dalton, I love you, Michael, uh, corrects on a regular basis. So so let's talk about Double Life. You know, I should mention the obvious, but, you know, people aren't seeing 
images. This is an audio show, so we can't sort of get into too much detail if they're not looking at pictures. But describe the project in, you know, in sort of broader terms. This is a project I love. It's one of my favorite long-term projects in the world. And you owe me a print, but that's a separate <laughs> conversation. Uh, <laughs> so tell folks about this amazing um, body of work. Yeah, so if you were to walk into a gallery and see photographs from Double Life, what you would see would be prints that are 30 by 40 inches or 36 by 48 inches on the wall. And each photograph looks like it is uh, two women in each scene. It looks like a relationship between two women. And viewers often, when they walk through the gallery, once they get to like the fourth or fifth photograph, they think, wait a minute, this might be the same one person doubled in each scene instead Mm -hmm. of two separate people in a relationship. And what I like about that reading of the work is that it functions on two different separate readings. On one hand, it reads as two people in a relationship. And then on the other hand, it reads as the self and the many different sides of ourself that we're able to explore by showing a more fluid representation of the self as pictured in the work. Yeah, so you, just to give people a sense of process from what I understand, you often act as a stand-in when you're shooting yeah. these scenes with, with Kiva and um, right. Been, so uh, yeah, how I make the work is I shoot with a medium format Pentax camera on a tripod. When I started the work, I was photographing Kiba using film, and then now I shoot digitally also with a Pentax six seven. But how we make the work is the cameras on a tripod, and then Kiba will be wearing one outfit. A stand-in will be wearing another outfit. Usually the stand-in is me, and we use the self-timer to act out the scene. We'll shoot several pictures, several rolls, or several digital images, and then we'll change clothes and take on the roles of the other two characters in the scene, act out the scene again, and shoot more images. And then after that, I'm able to print out the smaller images to figure out which figure on the left works best with the figure on the right. And those two images are the ones that I composite in Photoshop to create a believable image that's actually a fiction. So that fiction is a deception, but for me it allows something that feels very true and honest to come through the work because I'm sharing things about my own life experiences, memories, or things I want to talk about in relationship to gender, sexuality, and relationships in general. So photographing with Kiba in that way where the camera's on a tripod and using a self-timer, what I enjoyed about that is that the typical photographer-sitter dynamic where the photographer has primarily quite a bit of power over the sitter being behind the camera is kind of more equalized where there's no mm-hmm. one behind the camera. We're acting together. We take on those roles with each other. And that power dynamic is kind of shifted to where the model has 
almost an equal power. I mean, the photographer will always have more power in their, their vision and what they're trying to say. But because I originally felt so uncomfortable being behind the camera with that much power over a sitter, the way I photographed with Double Life was a way for me to let go of some of that and let her be more collaborative. And Kiba herself, I had met as an undergrad at the University of North Texas. She also was studying photography, and she was a couple years older than me in the program. We weren't close friends then, but we I knew of her. I knew of her work. I'd see her out at different events. And um, because she has a background in photography, she's been amazing to work with. She totally understands what I'm doing with my camera, what I can see through the viewfinder. She understands what I'm after as far as technical considerations and conceptual concerns. And for her, because she now teaches high school art and makes a few images but isn't a practicing artist so much as she's dedicated to her teaching, being part of Double Life allows her to make work as a model or muse. And I feel like that's just as important as what I'm doing as a photographer and allowing her to have that vehicle to make art through has really been important for her. And it's been such a gift for me over the course of these past 20 years. So just to be clear, for our listeners, if if they don't know this work, it's extremely narrative. So each picture feels like a scene of something happening. And uh, Kiva, as you said, plays both roles in the the final image. She's never looking at the camera. The the two people, (laughs) let's just say they're two people, the the two figures in each picture are extremely caught up in usually each other, mm-hmm. but always whatever is going on between them. So even if they're in a scene where they're sort of separated out a bit, maybe one's sitting in a chair and the other's looking out a window or whatever, you know it has to do with something is going on in their relationship. It's always extremely loaded and with tons of inference and leaves so much, or I should say, gives so much to the viewer in the way of interpretation, Mm -hmm. way beyond just the literal description, but tons of of feeling. It's the pictures are extremely emotional. And I think that it's an incredible achievement, right, that you've been able to make this work that is so the pictures are really aesthetically quite beautiful, in some ways very formal, but also so filled with feeling. I I know I've been really impacted by so much of this work. And we should also say, just to be clear, in Double Life, that these are two women, you also are no longer married to Jamie, And, you know, your life has moved into quite a while ago, but 20 years ago, I think, moved into a place of considering yourself a a queer artist, a queer person. So just just to underline that. Right. And I think the first pictures in Double Life were me exploring that newfound sexuality and desire that I had for women 
And those of you, you can't see me on this podcast, but I'm very femme representing. And if you saw me on the street, I look extremely straight. So that's just, that's just (laughs) the way it is. And even if I try to sit like a a butch woman, I don't know if I could pull it off, but that is true. (laughs) So uh, when I first started Double Life, I was really interested. I was like, well, how will other women know that I am attracted to them? Like, do I need to walk a certain way, wear a certain (laughs) baseball cap? Do I sit a certain way? Like, what, how will they know? because I'm not androgynous or butch presenting. And it was kind of a really new learning experience for me. So I would go to different places where queer people would hang out and I would watch how they would interact with one another. And in many ways, Double Life, the beginning there was allowing that one figure who's taking on both roles in the relationship to be able to be more butch or femme, or sometimes both of them are femme, or sometimes both of them are butch, or sometimes there's a gray area as far Mm -hmm. as how they might see themselves. But letting that one figure take on all those roles was really important and something that I was uh, learning about myself. And then as you mentioned, I met Betsy in 2004, And uh, we got married in 2009. And over time, as I've had a long-term relationship with her, I think the images in Double Life also evolved from not being those very first images where I'm figuring all of that out to reflecting what was going on perhaps with my relationship with Betsy as a committed partner who's been married and our lives are more comfortable and uh, the scenes changed as well to where we might be in double life. They might be renovating a house or going to bed early or Mm -hmm. going through (laughs) some harder times that present themselves in Mm -hmm. relationships. Yeah, I, I really love that about the project. And this is one of the great things about a long-term project, especially one that's personal, is to see the, the development of, of life. Oh, and one other thing you mentioned, too. Uh, yeah. You mentioned that in Double Life, both of the women in each scene don't make eye contact with the camera. And mm-hmm. yeah, that is, it's almost like you're looking at a film still, like watching a mo- right. movie. Absolutely. And it's just one slice of their life and the it's quite voyeuristic really yeah there's a real voyeuristic element right and for me it was important that the emotional charge you feel is the first thing that hits you way before you think about photoshop or technique or anything oh yeah absolutely so them never making eye contact and just being absorbed in their own lives with one another. I had gotten so used to working that way that, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in a bit, but uh, when I did finally turn my camera on Betsy and was no longer compositing, and she was looking directly at the camera through the lens to me, the photographer, and then beyond me to the audience, I found myself confronted with the gaze and what that means. And it was a kind of a major 
conflict. An inner conflict for me that I was dealing with at the beginning of the Pictures for Karis work. Yeah, so let's let's get into that. I, I do want to just um, sort of punctuate the fact that Double Life does primarily feel like because of the way the scenes are constructed, because Kiba, the model, is never looking anywhere near the camera, it does have this really exciting, as I said, voyeuristic element um, where we are getting to watch what feels like two people's lives in an intimate moment um, unfold. And that, I think, is a part of the thrill of that work. And it is certainly the language of that work. Mm-hmm. So let's move on to this new project, which will be, you know, both museum exhibition, but has also just come out. I don't think it's available quite yet, but probably will be when this podcast drops. You'll give us that date. But just came out as a an aperture monograph called Pictures for Karis. So why don't you tell us uh, about the project, about the book? Yeah, so when you're able to see and hold the book, what you see is when you open it, there's 20 chapters of text that I have written, and it also includes excerpts of Karis's writing. So you're listening to me as the narrator, and then interwoven with my voice is Karis's writing, too. And I should mention that Karis Wilson was model for Edward Weston when they first met in 1934, and he photographed her in his photography studio in Carmel in 1934 and 1935. And then because of the Great Depression, he had to take a job in Santa Monica Canyon, and Karis's mother's dress shop closed down, as many businesses did then, And at the time, they were deeply in love. And he said, if we're going to struggle, let's just struggle together. So she moved to Santa Monica Canyon, and they started their life together. A couple years later, Edward was one of the first photographers, the first photographer to receive a Guggenheim Fellowship for making a project that was about photographing California and the Western states. And... Karis traveled with Edward on 17 different trips throughout the American West, primarily California, and Edward made over 1,100 8x10 negatives on that trip, almost all landscapes. There's just a few pictures of Karis that pop up in that work, and at the same time, Karis was keeping an extensive travel log that she would type on her Royal Sydney typewriter, either propped on the hood of their car or at campsites at night every day. The result of that, all those travels, became a book called California in the West that was published in 1940. And it includes chapters of text written by Karis and then 96 photographs by Edward. So early on, I became really fascinated with Karis, like kind of 
not obsessed with her, but maybe obsessed. Maybe a little obsessed <laughs> with her, but it wasn't the photographs that Edward had first made of her that completely captured me. It was more her writing and who I thought she was and like how magnetic she was as a person, as someone who was very intellectual, smart, hilarious, quick-witted, and just charismatic, but also free spirit and very independent. So through Mm -hmm. her writing, I was able to learn more about her. And then as I learned more about her, I learned about Edward. But anyway, so I read California in the West. I also read her autobiography. And then that led me to wanting to learn everything I could about her. So I read what other critics had written about her. And then I went to the Center for Creative Photography in Tucson, where the Karis Wilson archives are housed, and also the Edward Weston archives are housed. And I took at least five different research trips looking through the archives. And it was really important for me that I look through Karis's archives first. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to look through Edwards, but at a certain time I needed to. Mm-hmm. But if you were to look at the book, my book, Pictures for Karis, the outside pages, if you see them, they alternate between sections of pink pages and then white, pink, then white, pink, then white. The pink pages are my text, and inside that text body, there's also images made by Edward Weston that trace their relationship from when they met in 1934 until Karis left him in 1945. And then the white pages are my images on their own in suites of photographs that are devoid of text. You're just looking at images only. Mm And there's four sections of my photographs, I think 75 total photographs of mine in the book. So Mm -hmm. it's really an extensive project that took quite a bit of time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I started it in 2014. And, you know, now the book's coming out in 2024. So um, I had no idea that it was going to evolve the way it did. But I just trusted my gut and went along with whatever form the project wanted to become. And you were very secretive because I tried to get you to show it to me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Many times over the years, and I I would get a hard no. So (laughs) it's so thrilling for me personally to finally see this work. So let me just say to the listeners, it's an extraordinary achievement. I mean, it is, it's truly mind blowing. It is so deeply researched, so incredibly thoughtful, so personal, and we'll get into that. The pictures are breathtakingly beautiful, and how you went from using one very specific set of visual language to another, as I alluded to, completely different set of visual language is is really extraordinary. I'm sure that was just so difficult and challenging and I'm sure also very rewarding because your your pictures are, are really so beautiful. But, you know, it's been a long time since I've I've seen a book this yeah, this comprehensive your writing is is really wonderful, really great. I just encourage people not to be scared of the text. As Kelly said, there is a lot of it, but it's beautiful. It's like reading an incredible memoir. So 
Let's talk about how your partner of almost 20 years, Betsy, became the sort of subject for many of these pictures. And I just want to say to anyone who doesn't know how important Edward Weston's photographs historically have been extremely important for a very long time. He was considered one of the most important photographers, I would say one of the top 10 most important photographers of the 20th century. Whether or not that still holds, I do not know, not for me to decide, but it was that way for a very long time. And I would say that some of Edward's pictures of Karis, particularly the nudes, have been considered some of the most important nudes ever taken. So I don't want to assume that everyone knows Edward Weston's work, but I, I just want to say that your sort of fascination with Karis and your, you know, th- this isn't an obscure for folks of our generation, Kelly, you know, this is work that was really known and has, has, so for me also, like finding out who Karis really was through your, your book has been really interesting. So let's talk about when this first started, what was the initial spark and to do this project? And then how did you, how did you get started? Yeah. So, well, when Betsy and I met in 2004, actually that very first trip we went on together was in Marfa, Texas, and I made some photographs of her that weekend. And there is a photograph in the book entitled Marfa, Texas, and she, Marfa Mm -hmm. in the book, and she's lit by the shadow of some blinds that are Mm -hmm. across her, her body. So over the course of years, I was slowly photographing Betsy, like very slow, and I started to want to work with her in a project, but I didn't quite know what that project would be. I just started to photograph Betsy more regularly. And then I became extremely conflicted with the power I had as the photographer behind the camera Mm -hmm. on my wife who I who either had the choice to make eye contact with me or to look away. And mm-hmm. in double life, they're always engaged with one another as two characters. But now we had the model who's then looking at me with a you know direct eye contact, and I'm mm-hmm. her partner behind the camera. And I think because everything I had read about the male gaze and as a feminist, All of that knowledge about the male gaze became a really loud voice in my head. And I I kind of felt stuck in a way as to what pictures I could make of her that I felt comfortable with and which ones I should be a little bit more sensitive to. So because I felt that conflict, I was really interested in learning more about other photographer-sitter relationships, especially with relationships over a very long period of time. So I did a deep dive into learning about Georgia O'Keeffe and Alfred Stieglitz and Saichi Furuya and his wife, Christine Gosler, And then I started to research Edward Weston and Karis Wilson. But the reason I first started to research Karis was once Betsy and I were staying at this inn in Lakeside, Michigan, and she was laying on a sand-colored comforter. I was making her a 
portrait of her and the sand colored comforter immediately reminded me of the dune photographs that Edward had made of Karis rolling down the mm-hmm. dunes in Oceano. Mm-hmm. So seeing that I was like, whoa, that is really interesting that I just thought about that. But this is a queer relationship and Betsy's diet, Dr. Pepper is on the bedside table <laughs> and my coffee's on the other and we're indoors. We're not outdoors. Like I felt like there might be something there. So when I got home, I looked up those images of Karis and started to research as much of her as I could. And then I also remembered that Chaz, who I mentioned earlier, when we were Mm -hmm. looking at photographs from all those photography books, he had given me a postcard of a woman floating nude in a swimming pool. And that was actually a picture of Karis. The photograph is called Nude Floating 1939, and it was made by Edward Weston. And I didn't know when I saw the postcard at the time that it was a Weston image. I just knew that I felt a connection or an affinity with the woman who I saw floating in that pool. And I think it's because I grew up swimming and so did Karis. And often after my swim team workouts, I would lay like her just floating, resting. So I just became fascinated with her and did the research. And then I also was through that, I realized that I wanted to continue making portraits of Betsy and to allow those portraits to also, like they did in Double Life, explore sexuality, gender, the relationship between Betsy and myself, to be able to speak about what I've learned about Karis and Edward through how I photograph Betsy. So we began to make trips out west together and to photograph in the places where Edward and Karis had lived or made work together. And I was comfortable making portraits with my 6'7", because I had done it for years, but I also wanted to make landscapes. And this was something very new to me. So I had to learn how to use a 4x5 field camera, and I did extensive research about the places where Edward had made landscape pictures where I knew Karis was right there doing her own writing and often right beside him or seeing the landscape in her own way. So my landscape photographs that I was making, some of them are reef photography or related to that and that I will stand in the same place that he stands, make a similar picture as he made. But oftentimes I would turn my camera to the left or right or notice what was behind me or look for a view that I felt was more emotional, I guess, or queer or feminine compared to how Edward had photographed the landscape. So, Kel, let me ask, I'm going to ask you two questions at once, and you can tackle them in whatever order you want. Two things I'm really interested in in knowing. One is, what was the process of learning such different visual language. Um, First of all, you were using a different camera primarily. You're shooting these direct portraits, uh, as we've discussed, but also a tremendous amount of straight landscapes. So, you know, I want to know what that was like. But I also, a more or less sort of technical question, 
you know, so much of your work before Pictures for Karis, and I'm talking about Double Life, were really, as you alluded to earlier, self-portraits. You're learning about yourself Mm -hmm. through these pictures. Do you think of the work in Pictures for Karis as self-portraits, or is that also a huge departure? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't see the photographs of Betsy as self-portraits, but the work as a whole with the writing and the landscapes and the photographs of Betsy do feel very emotional and Mm -hmm. Well, it's a memoir, right? As yeah, a, it's, a, it's a memoir, yeah. and I feel like there's a lot of love in those photographs, and there's also a tie to grief in this work. Karis left Edward in 1945, and my book traces their relationship from when they met until she left, and it goes through all the stages of intense desire and love and companionship and partnership to strife, hardship, and what they went through throughout that 11-year period until she decides to leave. And when Betsy and I first went out west, recently before that, Betsy had experienced the death of her older brother, and I had lost my dad. And I realized through my dad passing away that no matter what stories I told people, they would never understand him the way that I did. Mm -hmm. Language is very limiting and narrow, and it could never, I could never have anyone experience the way that I felt when I was around my dad. So Mm -hmm. it's pretty interesting that this medium of photography has kind of a close hand in our perception of death. So I feel like the, the work does speak to grief in that way through the writing and how I'm looking at a relationship that happened 80 years ago and then looking at my own relationship now, but also paying attention to how we look at history and how history is continually changing over time. Mm-hmm. And like the pictures he made of Karis and their relationship and how Edward Weston is framed through the decades, his life has been interpreted, retold, shaped, and evolved over time through the lens of whatever culture or writer or critic has crafted the lens in which we look at him through. So what I was really fascinated by is thinking about the 1930s and what a a free time that was living in Carmel in this bohemian community that Karis and Edward lived in. They kind of broke through many traditional conventions and... Mm -hmm. That part was really fascinating for me, and I kind of tried to hold on to that sense of freedom that she had and that I learned to see Edward through, too, because truthfully, going into this, I wasn't the biggest fan of Edward Weston, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. especially because he's a white male modernist, and I didn't want to really like Edward, to tell you the truth. But um, (laughs) 
the more I learned about him through her and realized that he also was a free spirit and really embraced anything that was non-traditional or unconventional in the way that relationships could be or the way that he could be as an artist trying to live a simple life working on his work, I just realized that history keeps changing and will always keep changing and it kind of depends on who's telling that story as to what we how we interpret things so even what I've written about my own life as Betsy and I begin to make these trips from Chicago to California and back that telling of my own story will keep changing over time through the lens of history in 20 years from now and I think that is a big part of this work as well. Can you read, there's a wonderful passage that starts on, on page 18. Can, can you, I have a train going by. Can you actually read some of that? Because I'd love people to hear both your writing and Karis's writing, which is in, in this section. Can, can you read that for us? Yeah. Uh, So this is on page 18. Karis would not have written a memoir at all if it were not for the gnawing frustration with how narrowly Edward and his work were interpreted in the decades after his death in 1958. She had carefully cut out the articles that had so aggravated her, annotating the margins with passionate exclamation points, question marks, and X's, underlining text, often in red, sometimes twice. Later in her life, Karis was increasingly invited to give lectures on Edward and her time with him. In her notes for one of these engagements, she outlines her initial response to the invitation to speak. No, of course not. One, I'm not a speaker. Two, I'm not a photographer. Three, I'm not an expert. Four, I don't have theories about photography. Five, I don't even have slides. Then I thought of yes buts. One, haven't you been complaining in recent years that Edward's image was getting more and more unrecognizable? Two, shouldn't you try to correct some of this growing mythology before it gets any further out of hand? Three, why leave it to people who never knew him to furnish fanciful accounts of what they assume he was like? Four, why indeed? Sifting through her papers, I found notes for another such talk. Most of what is written and said about him leaves me somewhere between mildly amused and violently outraged. I know that I overreact and that the work of history is simplification. We collapse centuries into the dark ages and we gloss over years and decades as the roaring 20s or the depression. And as history gets simplified, so must individual lives. All the sharp, significant incidents that we've lived through and been shaped by eventually settle into a soft, generalized image, as if what was once a dazzling, sharp photograph, full of fine detail, faded to a thoroughly pictorial mist with barely a discernible subject. This simplifying process is at work today, transforming the real EW into an imaginary historical character, and there is no stopping it. I'm aware that it is not possible to set the record straight, 
I hope, however, to produce a memoir in the coming year that will stem a little of the tide of nonsense that's been pouring ease way ever since big money and the photo market made him an easy target for the game of revelations. This is me writing now. How hard it must be to see someone so important to you, with whom you spent a significant part of your life, reduced in a few paragraphs to a person you don't recognize. When we lose people close to us, we become aware of the utter failure of language to describe the reality of who they were, and we realize the ways in which the stories people tell have the ability to reshape our understandings. And if the person is as well-known as Edward Weston, their lives and art can readily be interpreted, used by other people to advance their own narratives, their own agendas. Yeah, that's really so moving, both Karis's writing and your writing. It just is so amazing to me because I think about this mythology, as I think Karis says, about Edward Weston, and I even grew up with that. And now you've created a project. I mean, I never read Karis's autobiography, so I, I didn't have that opportunity. But it, it's really incredible how now you've made this project that, you know, takes the torch and carries the torch, whatever I'm trying to say, takes the baton. Anyway, and, and now you're doing your part to debunk the mythology around Edward Weston and also introduce us to the real Karis. I mean, I feel like this book is going to be such an important contribution to the history of these um, figures in photography. I'll also just say it's, yeah, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to say on that note, like, I also feel like Karis wrote her autobiography, not just to set the record straight, for Edward, and she realized there was no way she could really do that. But I think she also did it for herself and Mm -hmm. for her daughters and for other female muses and artists. If we throw out all the Edward Westons with history, you're also pushing out her and the voice she had as an active partner in that relationship. And I feel like Karis didn't want to be seen as simply his muse. Right. She was a really strong, independent woman who never saw herself as simply a muse. And oftentimes Mm -hmm. when we learn about Edward Weston's work, that's sometimes how it's framed through your art history teacher or whoever you're learning about. So let me ask you a weird question um, or sort of maybe a little provocative, about as provocative as I get. You know, we're talking about how Karis doesn't like this sort of mythology around Edward, and you don't like the mythology around Karis to some degree, or the way she's been sort of immortalized in a way that is reductive Mm -hmm. of who she was. Is there any concern about Betsy being either reduced to a model in this book or concern about us not really knowing fully who Betsy is? Does your writing um, mitigate that concern? What if someone's just looking at the pictures? You think about that? Yeah. I mean, I think all of us as fine art photographers, all of our work will continually be reinterpreted through history's ever-changing lens. It's something that we have to 
give over to the audience and just trust that through time, that interpretation will hopefully, what we really wanted to say will rise up above anything else. Mm -hmm. I feel like in this work, and I think Betsy would agree with me, like some pictures feel like they're very true about Betsy's personality. Like I'm taking a photograph of Betsy. Other mm -hmm. times she's playing the role of Karis or playing a role that I'm interested in her portraying that's emotional or she's taking on different personas or sides of herself and they may be less like how you would see Betsy in person right in front of you. And I guess that tie is also true in Double Life, how I would photograph Kiba and make her portrait as Kiba Jacobson is very different than how she's pictured in Double Life. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. my work has always allowed me to bring up important questions about relationships. And because Betsy and I are in a, we're in a queer relationship, these questions come through in this body of work as well. Just wondering if, you know, sometime down the line, someone was going to make a book about you and Betsy. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us a little bit about learning such a different language and how, how you went about that at this point in your life. Yeah, so after those initial research trips at the Center for Creative Photography, I realized that there was no way that my photographs on their own could give the complete story that I wanted to tell. So that's when I realized that a large written component was needed for this work. So I just shifted my practice as an artist to also learn how to let writing have part of the process. And I dedicated a lot of my time waking up early, writing in the mornings, trusting that all of the writing would lead me to figure out the form of what this project wanted to be. And then also making landscapes in a place where I'm chasing a ghost. I'm mm -hmm. chasing uh, Karis's ghost and wanting to stand in the places she stood and wanting to see what she saw and to pay attention to the environment where she was in. It's kind of interesting that I was looking to feel a closeness to her and mm -hmm. she's someone I would never meet. And learning how to make pictures with the four by five for me was way less technical than Edward's concerns with the technical concerns that he had both using the, his eight by 10 and then producing the work in the dark room. For me, it was much more a pilgrimage to be in a place where someone was and to learn what that place might offer me through the stories that she told and my experience and Betsy's experience of being in those same places 80 years later as we travel across the United States as a queer couple compared to what a male landscape photographer might experience on their own on the road. I just want to say that it's it's no small feat to go from, well, let's just say not being a morning person to getting up early every morning and writing. You know, I'm, I'm sort of underlining this because, you know, I always want folks who are listening to the podcast who are at different sort of levels in their practice to really understand the rigor 
necessary to make great work. It's not just taking the camera out and letting the camera do the, do the work for you because the camera is obviously an incredible uh, machine. But not only do you have to, you know, have, you know, a concept and be very dedicated to a language that you're using to bring that concept forward, but you have to work hard and you worked so diligently on this project. I, I just have so much admiration for you and, and what you committed to to, to bring this to the world. It's, oh, it's thank really you so much, Kelly. Sasha. Thank you. And yeah, me learning the four by five was a very steep learning curve as well. Like yeah. I, I remember the first landscape photograph that I made thinking, what the hell am I doing standing here mm-hmm. with a four by five, um, <laughs> taking these photographs? Why when, is everything upside down? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, uh, you know, I'm just so used to being a portrait photographer and I had to let that go and just go with it. But it was hard work. Like I've broken the ground glass of the four by five. Betsy mm-hmm. and I have <laughs> hiked all the way to like Lake Adiza to try to find this exact piece of granite that Karis is leaning against in the photograph, Karis, Lake Adiza, 1937, taken by Weston. And that was extremely strenuous, a seven mile hike in where we only stayed for like two hours and then did a seven mile hike out. And we actually did that hike on two different trips over two different summers to try to find that one place where she might have rested. Uh-huh. And um, it's kind of a crazy thing. <laughs> a that, pilgrimage. A yeah, true pilgrimage. totally. But it was well worth it. And I just had to trust that this would all work out. And one of the biggest challenges was figuring out how the text was going to work with the images because mm-hmm. I worked on them separately. I would go on trips out west and photograph, and then I would come back and write. And I needed to find a way to marry those two as a form and the book is what has allowed that to happen and then in the exhibition when you see the exhibition my photographs large-scale photographs are on the walls of the exhibition and then edward weston's images of karis are in vitrines in the center of the gallery but small Mm -hmm. separate from mine and then karis and i have text on labels that is kind of a conversation between the two of us I'm sure you got some good help with the book um, from your editor, uh, Leslie Martin. Who, yeah, Leslie's incredible. Yeah, she. <laughs> I second that. I am a huge Leslie Mar- Martin fan. Well, and Emily Anderson's design, uh, she's mm-hmm. such an amazing designer to work with. And uh, her sensitivity to the text body is extremely mm-hmm. important because I wanted to create a book that people could hold in their hands and perhaps read while they're in bed. And it was very easy to read, but also that the photographs would have a power on their own, which is a challenge when you're making landscape photographs because they usually call for a larger book. And she did a very elegant design. I couldn't have asked for it to work with a better designer. Well, Having this book and reading, having actually read it in bed, I can I can attest to the fact that you all succeeded in that goal. It's um, just the perfect size and the perfect form 
for all this incredible content. Kelly Connell, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been such a pleasure to finally get to talk about this project with you. And I'm so proud of you, so happy for you. And I can't wait for everyone to get a copy of the book and see the work and enjoy it as as much as I have. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Sasha. It's been a real pleasure. Okay. Be well, Cal. Talk to you soon. Okay. Take care. Stay warm up there. (laughs) Yeah, I will. You too. Bye. Bye. Photo Work with Sasha Wolf is a production of the Photo Work Foundation. Executive producer is Sasha Wolf, and the associate producer is Taylor Selsback. The show is also produced and edited by me, Michael Chauvin-Dalton of Real Photo Show. Music is by J. Walter Hawks. If you like the show and wish to find out more about the foundation, please visit photowork.foundation and be sure to subscribe and review with all the stars on your listening platform.